Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're going to start there, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And uh, so it would be helpful if you have your Bible open to, the, to that passage because we're going to be walking through it. You know, the chances are real good that your Jesus is too small. And I'm not pointing any fingers at you because my Jesus is too small also. Like, Jesus is so relatable that it's easy to think of him as less than God. We think of him as more than human. That's how we see him. But rarely do we uh, see him as the almighty, eternal God of the universe who has created all things and sustains all things by his word. One of the things that I appreciate about Mark's gospel that we've been studying is that the way he portrays Jesus you know, the most common reaction to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is fear. Which makes sense. I mean, you think about it. The, the hurricane has become human. Right? Like the tornado is wrapped in flesh and, and we can touch him. But you better be careful. You know? You think, is that, is that really... God, and can I, like, can I touch him? <laughs> yeah, you can. Mark brings together in a beautiful way. He merges it with, the, he takes the raw, unbridled power of God, and he merges it together with tenderness and kindness that is like so sweet. It's kind of like, like Godzilla has become a Girl Scout, in a sense. I mean, he's still Godzilla, but now he's a Girl Scout. He's giving you cookies, right? It's like, how is that possible? And, and here's what that does. Here's what that does for you and me. It, it takes my skittish little heart that, that has become so fearful of like everything else but God, and it, and it reorients me. It brings me right back to where I need to be. He is the one whom I should fear. Yet, his kindness being what it is, I'm drawn in to trust him. I don't run from him. I, I'm drawn to him. It's, it's amazing. And I'm also drawn into rest. Because you see, God's on my side. And if God be for me, who can be against me? And so we come into the end of Mark chapter 4, and we cruise through Mark chapter 5, and, and we discover that, well, Jesus is all of this. And he asks us these two questions. Yeah, he makes these two statements that really form the center of this whole section in Mark's gospel. You see it in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, where Jesus asked the disciples this question. He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
And we also see it repeated again in Mark chapter 5, verse 36. Only this time it's a statement, not a question, where Jesus tells a man whose daughter was dying, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. It's crazy, isn't it, that fear and faith go together kind of like an odd couple? You'll never exercise faith without feeling some level of fear. And fear is the main reason why most people never exercise faith. And at some point, we have to tell our fears where to stick it and move forward in faith anyway. And so we have all four of these stories in Mark chapter 435 to the end of Mark chapter 5. All four of these stories, like they share this common theme. And on the surface, you have four desperate situations, desperate situations, where people encounter the power and the grace of Jesus and they find freedom. But then on a deeper level, these four stories all point to Mark's ultimate message where he's leading us, that Jesus is going to confront evil at its very core. Jesus is going to go toe-to-toe with death, and he's going to defeat it. And he's going to take on the thing that you and I fear the most, death itself. So with your Bibles open, I hope they're already open by now to Mark chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 35. I just want to just quickly show you how these four stories connect, and then we'll start walking through the stories, okay? But it's important to see how they all four go together so that we can see them as a whole. Um, In the first story, Mark chapter 4, 35, you've got the disciples, and they are in a storm-tossed boat thinking that they will die. And then the next story, as chapter 5 opens, you have a severely demonized man who lives among the tombs, who's literally immersed in death. And then the third story, as we continue in, you have Jairus, whose daughter is dying. And as we see, she actually does die. And then in the fourth story, you have a woman living with a death sentence, a chronic, untreatable illness where she constantly bleeds. So in each story, they're marked by death. And in each story, we see the power and the tenderness of Jesus coming through, coming together in a way that confronts our deepest fears, that confronts them, and encourages our frightful little hearts to trust Him. You ready for this journey? Mark chapter 4, we start with verse 35. We pick it up right there. It says, that evening, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, remember, this is right where we left off last Sunday. Jesus spent the day teaching, and he's standing in a boat to do the teaching because the crowd was so large. So now he's finished teaching, and the evening has come. Follow? And he says, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Because remember, he spent the day in the boat teaching. There were were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who 
is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? So in several places in the Psalms in the Old Testament, we have record of them celebrating the fact that God has power over the elements. Psalm chapter 89 verse 9 is one example. It says, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them, it says. And then Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 tells us that by him all things were created and he sustains them. So it stands to reason then, right, that if Jesus made it, he can command it. The grammar in verse 39 is very understated. When it says that he told that he rebuked the storm, it's, ex- it's very understated. The grammar really is more like Jesus literally just going, shh. It's sort of how my, my daughter used to do to me, dad, you know, dad, right? That's kind of like what Jesus did with the storm. That simple. He just, it's extremely low key. The Greek word is literally to be muzzled, literally. It's, you and I might say, shush. We might say, zip it, or shut up, or something like that. And immediately, the wind and the waves calm down. And this makes the disciples' accusation of him not caring seem really silly, doesn't it? In verse 38, they cried out to Jesus, Don't you care that we're going to drown, Jesus? The truth is, they had no idea how much Jesus cared. They didn't see it at first. They didn't understand it in that moment. But God cared so much that he was actually with them in their boat. God was with them. That's how much he cared. Does God care about you? He's with you. He cares that much about you. He's with you. You and I get like the disciples a lot, don't we? We don't see God doing anything to fix our problems. We don't see God moving as fast as we think that he should. And we, we always interpret that as he doesn't care. Have you noticed how we do that? He's not moving in my timeline, therefore God must not care. Like, why do we jump to that so fast? You wonder? But yet he's with us. Perhaps we need to start taking our cues from him. And like if he's not worried, then maybe I don't need to be worried. Maybe that's the better way to read that, don't you think? That that maybe the reason why he's not acting like I think he should act is because he's not as worried as I am. And if he's not worried, I don't need to be worried. So if I see God sleeping, maybe I should sleep. See? That's called faith. And Jesus' question about their lack of faith in verse 40 is is interesting too. Jesus says, do you still have no faith? Do you still? It's almost like by then Jesus, you know, they've already had some experiences with Jesus. We've talked about that before. They've seen the power of Jesus, right? So they've already had enough. And and, and it's it's as if Jesus is saying right there, like, with all that we've gone through so far, boys, you're not here yet. You don't understand this yet. That's the question. They're not there. Because, like, you don't think that Jesus is unstoppable yet? Like, as if he says, we're going to go to the other side of the lake, like, that doesn't mean that he's actually going to get to the other side of the lake. You know what I mean? Like, if Jesus says, I'm going to do that, you can count on the fact that he's going to do that. Can't you? I mean, he said that we're going to do that. So if Jesus says it, then we can count 
on it, but they didn't even have the faith to believe that. So Jesus stands up and goes to the storm. In verse 41, notice how the disciples reacted to Jesus. It says they were terrified. I think that's fascinating because they were afraid of the storm. And now they're terrified of Jesus. You catch the wording? Don't miss it. So in one sense, it's like it's one thing to be afraid of this storm, but now we have somebody in our boat who rules the storm, and they're terrified of him. And they ask this question, and you and I have to ask the same question. Who is this? Who is this in my boat? Who, who is this in my life? I see. So we leave the disciples with their question, okay? Stick that in your hat. We're going to move on. You come into chapter 5, and chapter 5 opens, and uh, you know, here the, we're going to leave the disciples. They thought they were going to die, but they didn't. We come into Mark chapter 5, and Jesus is landing on the opposite side of the lake in a region known as Gadara. The Gentiles lived there, so this was not a Jewish area, okay? It's important to understand. That explains why they were herding pigs. If they were Jews, they wouldn't have pigs. So this, these aren't Jews, these are Gentiles. Think of this as a little missions trip, I suppose, that Jesus took with his boys, okay? And so we don't know it yet, but, but the first thing that we see in chapter 5, Jesus is being accosted by this wildly demonized man who runs out of the tombs. Now remember from Mark chapter 4, we just read a second ago, that it was evening when they started across the lake. And then they go through a storm, and now they land on the other side of the lake. So by now, it's dark, which gives this scene kind of an eerie, Halloween-y sort of feeling, doesn't it? It's dark, and a man comes running out of the tombs screaming at you. It's a horror movie. It is. And Mark gives us this quick backstory on this man. We find out that he possesses superhuman strength. He's been breaking shackles. They can't bind the guy. They can't, keep, they can't tame him. He's got the superhuman strength almost. He is self-destructive. He's cutting himself with stones. He's isolated. He's living in a cemetery. He's crying out day and night. It's as if this man is a picture of hell itself, where the Bible tells us there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This man is in a living hell. This man falls at Jesus' feet, and essentially what he says is, what do you and I have to do with each other, Jesus? Don't torture me, which is rich considering that these demons had been torturing this poor soul for who knows how long. And now they have the nerve to beg Jesus not to torture them. The demons call themselves legion. Now remember that Mark's first audience, his first readers, were Romans. We've said that before. So they would be very familiar with the Roman legions. A legion of soldiers contained upwards of 6,000 soldiers. So could it be that this man had that many demons? Possibly. But that's really not the point. The point is, this is a man who is severely demonized. You know, at New River, we've had the privilege over the years, we've had a deliverance ministry. A number of you have experienced deliverance. I don't think we've ever encountered anybody quite this bad, though. I mean, 
We've seen some interesting things, but this man is on a whole nother level. Can you imagine the effect of this many demons on a person? You know, it's like the disciples in the boat who are at the mercy of the storm. This man is also storm-tossed and desperate, is he not? The storm is raging inside this man's soul. And then in a word, without even a struggle, what does Jesus do? As he did with the storm, Jesus commands the demons to leave, sending them into a herd of pigs, which they destroy. Demons, that's what they do, don't they? Demons, like their diabolical leader, the devil, they do three things. They steal, kill, destroy. So they were in the process of destroying this poor man, but Jesus stopped them before it was too late. Praise God. Pigs who don't have the same kind of will as a human would have are easy prey, and the demons quickly destroy them in the water. This man's a picture of you and me, isn't he? I mean, you and I may not have been naked and screaming in a cemetery, but we were certainly on the path of destruction until Jesus stepped in and set us free. He has removed the rags of our shame and past, and he's clothed us with his own righteousness. He has swept away the confusion of sin that gripped our minds and our hearts, and he's given us his own mind. You and I have the mind of Christ. Verse 15 tells us that the townspeople, they come out and they see this man sitting in his right mind and dressed and they see him with Jesus. And what are they? They're afraid of Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? Two times people are afraid of Jesus. So they're afraid of Jesus and they beg him to leave. They want him to go. You can't stay here, Jesus. You can't. But I love how, I love what happens in verse 18. You know, in verse 18, the man begs to go with Jesus. Do you see the contrast between the townspeople who are begging Jesus to leave and the man who was just healed begging to stay? And I think it's interesting that in these short little verses, we've got three times where the word beg is used. You kind of want to pay attention to that when you're reading the Bible. When you see a word that gets repeated like that, you want to stop and say, what's going on there? And, and we see begging is repeated three times in this little. You see the demons begging Jesus to not send them away in verse 10. You see the townspeople begging Jesus to leave their town in verse 17. And then you see this man who's newly healed and restored and dressed and in his right mind begging to get in the boat and go with Jesus. He wants to stay with Jesus. One group is begging him to leave. The other group, the other man, is begging them to stay. This is the kind of heart that moves God, my friend. What kind of heart do you and I have? It's a chance for us to just stop and think about my own reaction to Jesus. Far too many of us are like those townspeople who have a casual, distant relationship with Jesus as if I could take him or leave him. When he gets a little too scary for me, let me back off. But this man who was once so severely demonized, he knew that Jesus was his very life. You think about it. This man was not afraid of life with Jesus. This man was afraid of life without Jesus. He knew what life without Jesus was like. And this man wanted nothing more of it 
True? So you and I need the same kind of personal encounter with Jesus. I don't want a casual relationship with Jesus, do you? I don't want the kind of relationship with Jesus like these townspeople had. I see him from a distance. I see him do great things. I think, oh, that's interesting. And then when he gets a little too close, see, I, I am that man who came chasing Jesus out of the tombs, who knows what it is to be set free, who knows what it is to be delivered, and who is forever grateful, forever grateful to Jesus, my Lord, for the work that he's done in my life, setting me free. Amen? I'm not afraid of life with Jesus. I'm afraid of life without him. And now for the first time, Mark, and now for the first time in Mark, Jesus gives someone permission to spread the news, making this man the first missionary in history. Isn't that something? You notice, we've noticed that before in Mark so far, like Jesus heals somebody and he tells them not to tell anybody. But isn't it something that now Jesus tells this man, hey, I want you to go. He doesn't, I don't want you to come in the boat with me. No, you have work to do. You need to get out there. Start telling people your story. He's the first missionary. And I love the fact that this man had no formal theological training. I love the fact that he, that he had no seminary, no schooling. All he had was experience. You think he had some stories? I bet he did. See, this man was a witness. He was a first-hand witness to the power of Jesus. He experienced it in his own life. And Jesus said, now I want you to take that and share that with anybody else that you see. And the man does. He goes and he spreads the news everywhere. And then right away, Mark takes us back across the lake. So you see how we're doing this in the text? We're crisscrossing the lake. You see him doing that? So we're crisscrossing the lake. And in the same way that the demonized man fell at Jesus' feet, another man falls at Jesus' feet. But there could not be a greater difference between these two men. In verse 21, Jesus is met by a crowd. And this man named Jairus interrupts the crowd with a need. Now, we learn that Jairus is a synagogue ruler, which is a bit like uh, he's the chairman of the board, if you will, the chairman of the board of a local synagogue, which would have made him a prominent member in this small lakeside community. And the fact that actually we have his name is also very telling. It tells us that he was prominent. We don't have the name of anybody else that Jesus healed. We have Jairus' name. So obviously he was some kind of a prominent person. But in this very moment, in this very moment, none of that matters, does it? Doesn't matter who he is. Doesn't matter what he's done. It doesn't matter his status. Why? His baby girl is sick. And she's dying. And Jairus is desperate. There are few things in this world more desperate than a loving parent with a deathly sick child. Wouldn't you agree? Jairus' everything is at home lying in that bed, and she's got just breaths, hours to live, perhaps. And that's the only thing that matters to Jairus in this moment. And you notice that Jairus, who's otherwise a dignified man, but now desperate, he jettisons all dignity, all pride, all decorum, and he runs, and he drops to his knees in front of Jesus, 
begging him to heal his baby girl. And then verse 24, look at verse 24 in chapter 5 there. It feels almost nonchalant. It says, so Jesus went with him. You don't want to give that a little bit more punch, Mark? Like, so Jesus went with him. I don't know, can I just say it this way? Jesus is freaking cool. That's my opinion. Jesus is cool. He's unflappable. He's, he is not ruffled. His blood pressure doesn't pop up for even a second. I mean, here it, here it is. It's a life-threatening storm on the water in a water-swamped boat, and Jesus goes, shh. And then it's a wildly demonized man running from a cemetery in the dark, and Jesus tells the demons, take a hike. And now it's a crowd with a super desperate dad begging him for help. So Jesus went with him. It's almost like Jesus is checking his watch. Yeah, I got time to do that. I think we can squeeze that in. And he goes off to Jairus' house. See? And while they're walking to Jairus' house, here's what happens. Look at verse 25. Chapter 5, verse 25. It says, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, Jesus. His disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? Everybody's touching it. But Jesus kept looking around. What did Jesus do? Kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with what? There it is again. Third time, somebody encounters Jesus with fear. She comes trembling with fear, told him the whole truth, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So here we have in this story, you have not one, but actually two desperate people. And some, th some uh, commentators call this a Markin sandwich. It kind of sounds like something from Spock, or, but it's a Markin sandwich where Mark takes these two, these two stories and he merges them together. And because they go together and they really share the same point. And so here you have these, you have two desperate people. You have a dad whose daughter is dying. And you have a woman who has a chronic, untreatable illness. And she's drained her savings. She's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor for 12 years trying to find a cure. And the fact that she's desperate, and the fact that Jairus is desperate, and the fact that they both went to Jesus is the only thing they share in common. Otherwise, you couldn't find two more different people. Let's look at how they are. Jairus is surrounded by community. This woman is isolated. Jairus, we know his name. We don't know her name. 
Jairus is a religious leader. She wasn't even allowed in church because of her condition. Jairus is respected in the community. She was rejected by the community. Jairus is honored in the community, and she's ashamed because of her condition in the community. It's interesting that as different as they are, they both feel hopeless, don't they? Hopelessness affects all of us. It affects you and me. Maybe you're hopeless this morning. You know, maybe you and your spouse are, have been trying to get pregnant and nothing is working. Maybe you're battling chronic back pain and nothing is working. Maybe your finances are a wreck and you feel hopeless about ever getting them straightened out. Maybe your child is rebellious or caught up in the world's trap or struggling in some other way and, and you feel like, It'll never turn around. We know hopelessness, don't we? We know hopelessness. That's, that's, that is common to the human condition. We have problems and issues that are far out of our control, and we have nothing that we can do about them. We all know hopeless situations. But do you see who's in the middle of this one? Jesus. And do you notice that he's unflappable? You notice that he's cool? Do you see how cool he is? Like, he is not at all stressed out by this, is he? You just get this picture like, man, he is in charge. And he's there, and he's in the midst of it. I can picture Jairus feeling very antsy, can't you? As Jesus stops everything to talk with this woman. Like, remember, Jairus is there, and his daughter's dying. And Jesus stops the whole crowd, the whole thing, to talk to this woman and then he says, who touched me? And nobody shows up first. And you would think, well, now that's your cue, Jesus. Just move on. But he doesn't, does he? Mark says, he kept looking around. Jesus is like, I, I need to find this woman. I need to, not this, he didn't even know who it was. I, didn't, you know, I need to find this person. You say, well, what's going on? Did Jesus not know who touched him? I think that's, I think he did. I think Jesus knew who touched him. I think here's why Jesus insisted on finding her. It's because it was for her. It's kind of like this. You know, um, I don't know, let's say you're a parent, you got young kids, and you tell your kids, uh, hey, don't eat, don't eat anything before dinner. I don't want you to spoil your dinner. And you find a blue raspberry Jolly Rancher stick, uh, wrapper laying on the floor. And you're like, all right, one of my kids ate a blue raspberry Jolly Rancher, right? And so you call the kids in, you say, okay, which one of you ate the blue raspberry Jolly Rancher? And the three-year-old's sitting there with blue lips and a blue mouth. Now, you already know who the culprit is. But you ask them, why? Because you want your three-year-old to come clean with it. You want your three-year-old to admit, yep, that was me, right, so that you can properly deal with it. And Jesus is doing the same thing, not to shame this woman, but to give her the opportunity to give testimony to what he had done for her. Jesus is, Jesus is calling her out. Hey, let's not keep this secret. Let's not keep what I just did for you secret. Let's not keep your breakthrough secret. Let's share this. See? So he calls her out. He gives her the opportunity. Because remember, everybody else is in the crowd. There's a whole crowd around. And now they're all going, wow, that happened for you? See, he's giving her the chance to testify. So here's the, and I think this is some of us as well. Some of us need to 
start talking more. Some of us need to get out there more with what Jesus is doing and has done in your life. Your faith, what Jesus has done for you, was never meant to be secret. It was never meant to be just you and Jesus and nobody else. The things that he does for you are meant to be a blessing to everybody else around you. And sometimes, some, for some of you, it's as simple as getting baptized. Every time we have a baptism service, you're kind of uncomfortable, and some people don't even show up because you're like, you, don't, you know it's a little close to home. It's time for you to come out with that, my friend. Are you going to follow Jesus or not? You know, some of us, maybe it's just as simple as, like, your friends, what do they, they ask you at work tomorrow? They say, hey, what'd you do for the weekend? And, you know, normally you go, well, we just hung out, yard work, nothing big. But maybe it's time for you to say, you know, actually, well, my family and I, we, we went to church, and, and this is what I learned, and this is how God blessed me. You know, come out with it. Like, Jesus has given us the opportunity to share what he's doing in our lives. But there's also something else that's super sweet here that we need to make mention of. Jesus calls this woman daughter. It's the only time that Jesus called a woman daughter. Why? Well, where's her dad? Where is her Jairus? Who's willing to beat down hell to find help? for his little girl. Like this woman's all alone, isn't she? she? She blew all of her savings on medical bills. She's been working hard. She has no one to embrace her, no one to fight for her. And so Jesus calls her daughter. I love that. He steps in, he steps in, and he becomes her Jairus. Listen, I don't know what your relationship is like with your dad. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. Maybe your dad is dead, but I know this. You'll never know a good father like God. He's the best. And the story picks back up again in verse 35. So remember Jairus? Okay. Jairus, verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Your daughter is dead. Do you feel the weight of those words? Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Is there anything in our lives more defeating than death? Anything. Game over. The final buzzer. Lights out. Lock up the doors and go home. Like Jairus' last-ditch effort to save his daughter had failed. He could have been at home with her, sharing her final moments, couldn't he? And yet, instead, he's out chasing some fantasy about trying to make her better and get her help. And now he hears the words, your daughter is dead. I mean, you hear those words and your heart just sinks. And then the follow-up question, why bother the teacher anymore? I mean, that's it, Jairus. You did everything you could. You tried. A for effort. But it's over. 
She's dead. I love verse 36. Look at verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Just keep believing. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, Hey, what's all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. How long had the woman been suffering with her issue? 12 years. How old is Jairus' daughter? 12 years. At this very, at this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, coming back to verse 36, it rings similar, doesn't it, to what Jesus said when he was back in the boat with his disciples. He told them, hey, don't be afraid, have faith. And here he tells Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. The verb tense here is literally keep on believing. Like the journey song, keep on believing. Like keep on, don't stop. When God doesn't answer my prayers right away, when God doesn't answer my prayers on my timeline, we tend to give up. Jesus says, don't give up. Keep believing, Jairus. You've just heard the worst news of your life. Your daughter is dead. Keep on believing, Jairus. That takes some serious faith, doesn't it? Yes, it sure does. In this moment, Jairus faces his own storm of sorts. Can, can you see how it might feel to be in Jairus' shoes in this moment? Your daughter was dying and Jesus was dilly-dallying. You, you don't think maybe you might be tempted to accuse Jesus of not caring, you know? It might be tempting to say, Jesus, don't you care? You delayed and now she's dead. See, death might seem hopeless to you and me, but to Jesus, it's nothing more than a nap. <laughs> He ignores the crowd, he ignores the mourners, and he steps inside the girl's bedroom with her parents, and, and, and I imagine he sits on the edge of the girl's bed, and he says the words, Talitha kum, which, are, which is a diminutive, actually, in the Aramaic. It's literally saying like this. It's like what her mother might say to her when she's waking her up from a nap. Jesus is saying, sweetie, wake up. That's what it is, Talitha kum. Sweetie, wake up. It's a picture of compassion and gentleness as well as command. Jesus is not at all intense or demanding. Jesus is not at all worried or ruffled, is he? Here's a dead girl and really upset parents. And Jesus is still cool. And he says, sweetie, wake up. He has so much command, so much command over death that he can gently nudge a dead girl and tell her to wake up. And she does. Can you imagine the joy of those parents as they embrace their daughter who now lives? Verse 42 says that they were completely astonished. You see that in 42? The, the word there is literally ecstatic. They've gone from the worst day of their life to a day they'll never forget. 
Amen? No doubt in that moment, they were very glad. Jairus was very glad he kept on believing. Don't you think? In that moment, I'm sure Jairus is going, oh yeah, I'm glad that I listened to what Jesus said and I kept on believing. And all this leaves you and me with this question. Karis, you can come play if you want. All this leaves you and me with this question. If Jesus is that powerful, let's put this together. If Jesus is this powerful that storms, demons, chronic illness, death, don't phase him. And if Jesus is this loving, who comes to us in our brokenness and he meets us in our hopelessness and he treats us with this kind of tenderness, friends, why would we be impatient with him? Do you see that? Why would we not trust him? Why would we ever be afraid again? Why would we ever be afraid again? If Jesus is this powerful and this tender at the same time, we see in all of this the central message of Christianity, that you and I are powerless, so of course we get afraid. Look at us, how small we are in the grand scheme of things. Yet, Jesus has entered our storm-tossed world, and he rides the boat with us. He rides the boat with you. And he's not intimidated by the storm that rages inside your soul. You can trust him with it. Everybody else chases you away. Jesus comes to you. And, and he's not ruffled by your desperation. And he's not ruffled by, by you getting upset because he takes the time to answer someone else's prayer. And he waits to answer yours. But him waiting to answer your prayer doesn't mean that he doesn't care, right? And he does not condemn us for being afraid. Instead, he invites us to trust him. Like some people might ask, like, why would Jesus, I know I get this question sometimes, like, like why does Jesus have to be the only way to heaven? And some people think that like, that's very narrow to think that way. And I, I just would respond, based on what we just read this morning, like, why wouldn't he be the only way to heaven? Like, do you know anybody who has ever done these things? I mean, no, no knock against Buddha, Muhammad, or whatever those guys are, but I mean, none of them have done any of these things. Would you agree? So what makes him the only way to heaven? Well, I'd say he's more than qualified. See? Some of us are in a desperate situation. Some of us are in a desperate situation. I want to encourage you this morning to bring it to him today. Bring your little girl to him. Maybe bring your bleeding heart to him. Your chronic need. Maybe bring your, your tormented soul, your confusion. Your confusion. Like, bring it to him. He stands ready to meet you here. And, and some of us, we haven't asked Jesus to forgive us of our sins yet. We haven't asked Jesus to make us right with God. And I, I want this morning to be the time you do that, would you? Would you, would you this morning say, Jesus, I, I see you now. I see you now. You are more powerful and you're bigger than I ever thought you were.
I, I, I always thought you, Jesus, were just like, were just like Buddha, just like Muhammad, all the rest, like you guys were all up there playing cards or something. I thought, Jesus, like you were just another name for these guys, and you guys were all the same. But I see this morning, no, 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 not at all. Jesus, you are supremely above any other human being, ever. See, you are God, wrapped in flesh, who loved us enough to come here to step into our boat, to calm our storms, to forgive our sins, to walk with us through trial. How could I not trust you? So I want to invite you this morning, let this morning be the day that you begin that relationship with him. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.